Welcome to Brain Forest Cafe with Dennis McKenna. All right. So, Dr. Christopher Ryan is an astute observer, commentator, and fellow experiencer of the human condition. Unlike most of us, his insights into the existential human situation undermine conventional wisdom and are often profoundly unsettling. This approach is reflected in his best-selling book, Sex at Dawn, published in 2010, which calls into question nearly everything we think we understand about human sexuality. His latest book, Civilized to Death, The Price of Progress, takes on the very notion of civilization and what he terms the narrative of perpetual progress. From the book's description, most of us can feel that something's off. Balmy December days, face-to-face conversation replaced with screen-to-screen zomboidism, a world of constant war, a political system in disarray. We hear some lies so frequently that they begin to feel like facts. Civilization is human's greatest accomplishment. Progress is undeniable. We're lucky to be alive here and now. Well, maybe we are and maybe we aren't. Civilized to death counters the idea that progress is inherently good, arguing that the progress defining our age may be analogous to an advancing disease. The ideas Chris Ryan unpacks in this book have reframed much of what I assume to be true about civilization and the evolution of our species. It has been a most unsettling experience as much as it has been edifying, stimulating, and enlightening. Chris, we are delighted to welcome you to the Brain Forest podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Well, there is so much to talk about. I have my uh, cocktail party uh, civilized to death sheet seat in front of me, but I think the... uh, well, uh, I guess the, the, the best way to do is to ask you, why were you motivated to write this book, and what are you hoping people are going to learn from it? Because I found a great deal to learn myself. As I said, the introduction has challenged many of my assumptions about practically everything about the human situation. Well, when I was working on Sex at Dawn, uh, which is uh, sort of a similar book looking at the prehistory of human sexual evolution. Um, I realized I can't talk about sexuality because sexuality is such a, so intrinsic to human experience. I can't speak about it without um, speaking about the context within which sexual behavior occurs. So we need to talk about um, not only intimate relationships between sexual partners, but uh, uh, parenthood and how power is configured in hunter-gatherer groups that our ancestors lived in for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, uh, nutrition and health and, and all these sort of aspects of, of what I, I call and others have called the Neo-Hobbesian paradigm, right? Mm-hmm. Thomas Hobbes very famously said that before the advent of the state, Human life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And the more I was researching, both in my doctoral dissertation and in Sex at Dawn, uh, all these different aspects of of human life before the advent of the state, uh, the more convinced I was that Hobbes was wrong on every point. Uh, Solitary? No. These people lived in intimate communities, extremely, like, intertwined and, and... you know, dependent upon one another, cooperative, egalitarian, uh, women and children were held in the same esteem as men by and large in hunter-gatherer groups. Um, you know, so certainly not solitary Poor, well, poverty is a relative concept, right? You're only poor if your neighbor has more than you. And also if you have enough, then you don't feel poor. And one anthropologist who studied hunter-gatherers, uh, um, an Israeli anthropologist, she said that hunter-gatherers are interesting because although they have virtually nothing, 
uh, in terms of material possessions, they go through life acting, acting rich. They act as if they have no concern at all for tomorrow and, you know, where are we going to find food? They're not saving for a rainy day. There's none of that kind of scarcity-based behavior, whereas modern humans who, in material terms, are incredibly wealthy, act uh, on the, upon the assumption that there's never enough. So we're constantly hoarding, constantly worried about tomorrow. You know, can I retire? What if I get sick? What if this happens? What if that happens? Uh, so certainly not solitary, not poor, nasty, brutish. Well, you know, the, there's all sorts of interesting data about the fact that war didn't really occur until the advent of agriculture, because before the advent of agriculture, there was nothing really worth fighting over. If nobody has anything, what are you going to take? What are you going to risk your life to take? You know, besides which everyone shares everything, right? Exactly. Right. It's more of collective culture. Yeah. Right. And in fact, what you see, even outside of your your group, what you see is traditions of incredible hospitality, some of which persist to this day in places like Afghanistan and very remote places. If you walk into a village in a place like that, there's a, there's a frenzy to make you feel welcome, to give you the best food and a place to sleep and, you know, People take care of strangers. They don't attack and kill strangers. So all these assumptions, and then short, of course, everyone thinks hunter-gatherers died at 30 or 35 years of age, and you know we've doubled the human lifespan, which is one of the most in intensely uh, propagated pieces of false propaganda uh, that I can point, point to. Uh, in fact, hunter-gatherers live into their 70s, typically. Um, and the idea that people were old at 30 or 35 is purely based upon the statistical misunderstanding of average lifespan at birth. It's true that many children died before they reached 10 years of age in hunter-gatherer groups. That's true. No avoiding it. And so if you take all everyone who's ever born and look at how, you know, at the age of death and average it out, you get about 30 or 35, but that doesn't mean that anyone was ever old at 30 or 35, right? So that's right. nonsense. Um, anyway, so, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of was seeing how this vision of prehistory was so politicized and distorted and the average person or even even medical doctors i taught in a, a med school in spain and every year i had to explain to these med students like no we have not doubled the human lifespan that hasn't <laughs> happened uh, right. you know and so i in sex at dawn I, I in the middle of the book i folded in a few chapters very brief politics you know uh, economics violence and these things just sort of, you know, the way you give a dog a pill, right? I thought everybody's going to be interested in the sex stuff, but they're not, this is a little dry and not as interesting. So I'll just slip it in there and they won't notice. Um, and I ended up getting a lot of emails from people, uh, including book agents, who said that stuff was really interesting. The sex stuff was interesting, but I'd like to know more about the politics and the parenting and the childbirth and, you know, how, how did they deal with with elderly people who couldn't keep up with the group? How do they deal with, you know, someone who's got a terminal illness and how do they conceive of, you know, religious ideas and life after death and all these other aspects of, of our hunter-gatherer past. And um, so as, you know, when Sex at Dawn hit and, and suddenly I had some leverage as a writer and I could pretty much pitch whatever I wanted for my next book, um, you know, that's, I had a couple of ideas. I had an interesting conversation with, uh, a literary agent and I, I had a follow-up to Sex at Dawn that was, um, you know, very much about sexuality and, and the sort of conflict between our innate, um, sexual appetites and the world we live in and the demands of modernity and all that. And, and I had this other idea for this more comprehensive look at prehistory um, but I thought, you know, maybe down the line, I'll get to that. Anyway, I told him about the ideas and he said, well, look, if you write another book about sex, you're going to be the sex guy. Like that's going to be your career, right? Yeah. And if you want that, great. But if you write another big idea book, 
like the one you're talking about that eventually became civilized to death. He said, then you could be a big idea guy and then you could write about whatever and your career would probably be much more interesting. I thought that was, that was good advice. It was not welcome because it's a much bigger project than the other book would have been. Uh, and it took a lot out of me to, to write this book. Um, but I think, I think he was right. I think it's an excellent book. I think it, you know, we have so many assumptions, some of which are outlined in your cheat sheet. We, we start with this basic premise that civilization is superior and therefore it's a, you know, it's a superior institution and therefore we must be superior because we invented it. But what your book makes clear is not so fast that the uh, forager cultures, uh, nomadic cultures actually did, they did live like rich people in a sense. They had everything they needed. They were not preoccupied with material possessions because they carried everything around and they had such tight knit social networks that that was the strength. Everyone looked after each other the way that children were raised, completely different than the sort of often authoritarian approach we have, the way that women are treated much more egalitarian in these in these cultures. So the, what I gathered from, uh, from your book, among many other things, is that we had to, there was a point about 12, 13,000 years ago when there was catastrophic climate change and on a global scale. And that forced the invention of civilization in a sense as climate, you know, resources began to run out and people became, you know, preoccupied with accumulation of things, mostly food initially. How are we going to, uh, you know, stave off starvation when that abundant resources that that these other uh earlier cultures lived in those those are now threatened so civilization was kind of a it was a bargain that we had to make or we, at least we thought we had to make to ensure the survival of our species but in some ways it was a devil's bargain because in we had to sacrifice so much you know what we had before in order in order to come up with these civilized solutions or the civilization and many of the problems that civilization you know the medical breakthroughs technological breakthroughs those sorts of things are all seen as as part of progress but in fact they were forced upon us by civilization in a certain way. I mean, there, you know, civilization created the problems, many of these problems of shortages and so on, inequality, and it's been a trap ever since. I mean, we can't just back out of it. You know, uh, we've yeah. been forced into this, and uh, and in the process of doing that, we've invented technologies that enable us to proliferate like crazy on the planet you know and and that's a big problem that you know there are so many people now and so dependent on the infrastructures like industrial agriculture and this sort of thing just to keep us alive that we can't just step back and say one day well gee this isn't working for us let's all become foragers <laughs> yeah you know uh, I mean, that may be the ideal life, and that may be closer to how people uh, are meant to live, but what do you do in this situation? Where we stand now, are there, is there any way we can't return to a foraging-type culture? It's not even a civilization. What is our existential choice at this point in, in history, with history itself being an invention of civilization? Yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, uh, that you're obviously you're right. There's no going back to the garden as it were. 
Um, but I think there's a lot of value in understanding the context in which our species evolved. And I mean that both physiologically and culturally, uh, as far as hunter-gatherers go. And because understanding the sort of default setting of human psychology, of human sexuality, of human nutrition, of what kind of, um, you know, how much activity we need, you know, our bodies have expectations that have been built into us over hundreds of thousands of years. And so those expectations, when they're thwarted because of a mismatch between our evolved predispositions and the availability uh, of the society that we happen to live in, we suffer. We suffer stress, We and that manifests physiologically, psychologically, um, sexual dysfunction, all, all sorts of ways, digestive problems. And a lot of people are blaming themselves. A lot of people feel guilty that they're not happy. If you live in the best possible time in the history of humanity, as many people proclaim, then why are you unhappy? You must be lazy. You must be, there's something wrong with you, you know? And both of the books, Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death, both of those books were motivated by a desire to to bring comfort to people who don't understand why they're suffering and to show them that it's not uh, your personal inadequacy. It's not a problem necessarily in your marriage, you know, that you sometimes are attracted to people other than your partner. This is relating to sex at dawn more. Um, and you're, anytime there's a mismatch between what your body and your psychology expect and what it actually receives, then you have problems. And so I think we're seeing a recognition of this in many aspects of life right now, you know, um, you know, in, in, in your area, the, the sort of recognition of the need and the, the sort of incredible healing potential of psych psychotropic plants of trance states induced by, by dance, by chanting, by, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be plant induced, but the, the sort of innate predisposition for these sorts of states and, and the, the healing potential of them is built into us. Similarly, uh, in diet, people are looking at paleo diet. What did our ancestors eat? How much fiber did they need? How, and exercise, right? Daniel Lieberman at Harvard has written several books about, uh, you know, the, the evolved human body. How much movement do we need? Is it really 10,000 steps? Do we need to run? Can we walk? Can we dance? You know, so these things are built into us. And, right. you know, a lot of, a lot of people say, well, we're not animals. You know, we we're evolved. We're, we're very, we're civilized, but just cause you're civilized doesn't mean your body doesn't need the same nutritional input that it did human bodies did 10,000 years ago and you know how it deals with energy and fat storage and well, you know, all these it, things it, it seems to me that civilization has alienated us from our own bodies you know sure. as well as alienated us from the environment we've we've set up all sorts of barriers between us and nature i mean i think the profound existential crisis of our age is the fact that we're so out of sync with nature. We're so out of touch with nature. Yeah. You know, and we've sacrificed nature. We put screens, literally sometimes screens, between us and the rest of the natural world. You know, and uh, it seems like uh, that's that's something we've sacrificed. And, when when it comes to psychedelics, I think I mean psychedelics are very interesting. We both know for multiple reasons, but one of the one of the things that seems characteristic of psychedelics in people's revelations is people often have insights about how we are estranged from nature and how that's yeah. fundamentally at the base of a lot of societal problems. And also individual problems, you know, people are starved for nature. And and so, an interesting thing, psychedelics are nothing new. You know, psychedelics are thousands and thousands of years old. And they've been able, they've been giving us those messages for that long. 
and and yet maybe before civilization, maybe the message was different. They didn't need to propagate those messages because we did live in the natural world and we were harmonious with the natural world. And then as we moved into civilization, psychedelics, I think of them as co-evolutionary partners with us and they they have a message to propagate and the message has always really been the same this idea of symbiosis you know with the natural world and as we got away from that the message became sort of more and more strident more and more mm. hysterical you mm. monkeys need to wake up look what you're doing look at what yeah. you're doing to the planets you know yeah. and and uh and that's true and more and more people are listening now but it's almost like yeah, I wish we'd known this a hundred thousand years ago. Maybe we wouldn't have made these mistakes. So now here we are. That something that keep kept coming up for me when I was when I was reading your book. You know, I, I'm sometimes associated with the stoned ape theory and the idea that symbiosis, particularly, especially, and probably exclusively with mushrooms may be something that goes way back, like even a couple of millions of years back, because we know that in the uh, North Sahara, where these hominid, different hominid species co-evolved, we know that it was climatically very different than it is now. You know, it was much wetter. There were cattle in that. There was regular rainy seasons. It was an ecology where mushrooms had to be there. You know, the fossil evidence for cattle is there, hominids and so on. So I've often, you know, in my raps, I've sort of said, you know, the gift that mushrooms, the symbiosis gave to us was the ability to uh, visualize an internal reality, make a, make what I call the reality hallucination. You know, this association between symbol, sound, and image, which is very much involved with synesthesia. So, uh, you know, in a nutshell, we don't want to get off so much on my theories, but the idea that, that mushrooms taught us language and language enabled us to invent culture, which we generally view as a positive thing, but maybe it was not. Maybe this was not a blessing, but a curse. I mean, did yeah. the did the mushrooms lead us down the, the wrong path mm. thirteen thousand years ago? Or Yeah, there's a there's a lovely book called The Spell of the Sensuous. Have you heard of this book? No, what is it called? The Spell of the Sensuous. Um I have not heard of it. I forget the, the author, right. um, but it's really interesting. He he argues that the invention of language estranged us from a direct relationship to the objective world around us because we symbolized it. Now we we create symbols for everything, right? And you know, so as we whether it's spoken language or or, or even more extremely written language with little marks on a paper. You know, that means dog. And so you generalize about dog and you lose your connection to specific dogs, right? Because now it's all a platonic ideal of dogness because everything becomes generalized. Uh, oh. I'm, I'm butchering his argument, but basically it aligns with what you were just saying, which is this idea that as we, I, I hate the term invented, I use it, everyone uses it, but no one sat down and invented language, right? Or or agriculture, or you know, some tinkerer in a garage somewhere didn't come up with agriculture. It, it's an emergent property that that, that uh, arose given certain circumstances. But yeah, I think you're right. I think there's there's a lot to look into there, and you know, it's interesting. All religious traditions, spiritual traditions, basically, are different paths to immediate experience, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of a pre homo sapien sapien experience be here now you know yeah. quiet the monkey not, mind I mean, they, they've been they've been you know modified i mean in the organized religion the last thing they want anyone to have is a direct experience of of the divine you know but well yeah there's that yeah 
work. I just mean in terms of meditation, right. uh, prayer, you know, right. like there, there's a sort of like centering of the self and, and focusing away from the, you know, daily life kind of thing. Uh, right. But, but, you know, to, to, to sort of return to your question, which I think is the fundamental question, really, what do we do with this? You know, a part of it, as I was saying, is was motivated by the feeling that having this knowledge will relieve some suffering, and that in itself is very valuable. But on a, you know, a further practical level, I do think there are, are things that we can do to modify our lives in ways that, um, you know, mimic or resonate with these ancestral habits. And, and, you know, in the book, I talk about the experience of going to a zoo in Bukatingi, Sumatra, and seeing the animals sitting in these cages, concrete cages, you know, just bored to, to death, literally, versus going to the San Diego Zoo, where a lot of care was taken to kind of create an environment, albeit artificial, but that replicated as much as possible the environment in which these animals evolved. Um, and so I think we can do that for our own species, right? We're the only species that designs its own zoos and then goes and lives in them. I, that's what we, yeah, you know. I think that was one of the, that was one of the big insights of your book that I that really resonated with me yeah I mean at the end of the book you say well look we've we've created a situation for ourselves we're going to live in a zoo we may as well get used to it let's make it a nice zoo <laughs> one that, <laughs> yeah. that is compatible with basic human values we can redesign the zoo in some ways what concerns me, I mean, and ideally, we could be able to do that. But what I'm concerned with, basically, is that would work. You could redesign the whole terrestrial environment and our place in it if there were something like a billion people or maybe a couple of billion people. The Earth could easily support that number of people. Eight billion? It gets very problematic. You know, because yeah. then you're forced to require rely on these extractive industries, massive agricultural complexes, and and technology. You know, uh, uh, to keep to keep the whole thing going. A and at the same time, you know, all we have to do is turn on the TV. We don't have to turn on the TV. Look outside if you're in certain places. Look at everything that's happening. I mean, nature is. Uh, this this thing about climate change it's not that it's coming it's here we're living through it and it's getting worse and and i think nature's pissed off you yeah. know to a certain extent and so the you know i mean the 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 depressing sort of but inevitable part of this seems to be we can't support a billion we can't support eight billion people so about six billion of us need to die one way or another we will they, they just we need to cut uh you know uh birth rates which is happening in, in which the development can happen is it happening fast enough yeah is anything happening fast enough right you know, no the, it's not obviously <laughs> but yeah that that's and then of course there's the you know cataclysmic events that either natural or man-made like nuclear war and that will certainly you know cut down on the population it would be good if we could somehow achieve consciousness enough this idea of uh, reducing birth weights i mean birth rates uh uh you know if every woman could agree could in her own mind or if there could be agreement among women that they'll not have more than one child you know in a couple of generations that could cause a demographic collapse but you know uh, it the chinese tried to impose this and it didn't work it's got to come from the people that 
make the children and that's the women and if it comes from their their hearts and their spirits then it's possible but it's not you can't declare that people can only have one child i mean it just right just won't work but i do think we're i i think you know as always how you frame the issue or the perspective from which you view an issue determines what you see so um, yeah. you know often I feel that the world is spinning out of control and, or, you know, circling the drain as, as some of my doctor friends say. Um, but, uh, another way of looking at it on my more hopeful days is that a lot of the sort of grand historical trends are coming together in interesting ways. Uh, AI, for example, artificial intelligence is in the news, you know, suddenly in the last few months. Uh, and that appears to be a big deal because of the threat to labor markets, right? The threats, you know, the, everything is becoming automated, jobs are going away, and self-driving trucks. And that's like trucking's the major number one employer in something like 15, 20 states. You know, what's going to happen when there are no truck drivers? Um, you know, lots of, lots of uh, labor disruption. At the same time, that, you know, if we had, any kind of wise government, which obviously seems further away than ever, but if there were wise government joined with this massive labor disruption, and we arrived at a point where we agree that a minimum basic income is necessary because there just aren't jobs, right? It's just, but the society is creating incredible wealth and we're creating more right. wealth than ever. It's just right. badly distributed, right? So if we whether through revolution or wisdom or however we get there, if we could get to a place where we all agreed like, okay, we're going to have to distribute the money. People have a right to a basic decent level of income just because they exist. And we're going to incentivize people not to have kids. So if you don't, because one of the major reasons that people have kids is to have someone to take care of them in their old age. Right. I mean, around the world, that's the main reason. So if there's a global basic income and we say, look, if you don't have kids, you're guaranteed through life, if you're going to get $2,000 a month in local currency, whatever it is, um, if you do have kids, you'll get $1,800 a month. If you have one kid, if you have two kids, you get $1,600 a month and so on. Incentivize it. So you're not saying you can only have one kid. There's no enforcement. There's no just... If you don't have kids, you get a little bit more money. That combined with security through old age, I think would, I think most people probably wouldn't have kids if they didn't have the economic incentive. And another thing I think can be very helpful is if we, and this relates to the whole hunter-gatherer um, paradigm, if we're more um, living in, in, in communities with more interaction and egalitarianism and, and uh, cooperation, you know, for example, myself and my partner, neither one of us wants to have kids, but we really like kids. So if we were in a place with friends and, you know, and our friends have kids, we'd be more than happy to take care of those kids for a week. You guys go on vacation, enjoy yourselves. Your kids will hang with us. They know us. They've known us since they were born. You trust us. You know, it's not like hiring somebody you don't know. That kind of thing, this this sort of increased cooperation, which often happens due to crises, could be a great blessing in disguise. Indeed. If the economic collapse forces people to take care of each other, that could be the best thing that ever happened to us. Indeed. That's, that's very interesting that, yeah, uh, I mean, as we all know, there are incredible uh, dysfunctions and deficiencies in the way children are raised, treated, all of this. And, and this, but it seems like in order, like a, a society that is capable of saying things like everyone deserves a livable income, children deserve to be looked after and not suppressed. And all of these things that seem to pe people like you and me are probably a kind of a liberal, less left-leaning bent. You know, there are great 
factions of people now, I think a lot of it is fear-based, but, but the stance that, well, if you don't work, then you're not worth anything, you know, and you don't deserve support, you know, you're just a lazy bum, better you should not get any of the benefits society has, you know, or children are monsters if we don't impose discipline on them, if we don't bend them, usually to our notion of, uh, you know, what is religious and moral and so on. And you have only to look at religions to realize how, you know, how immoral they are by and large. I mean, the history of uh, Christianity in, in the New World is all the illustration you need, and there's plenty plenty more where that came from. I mean, <laughs> institutional religions yeah. have no moral authority in the world that I can see. They've squandered it, if they ever did have it, you yeah. know. So, so then where do you get that kind of, where do you, how do you arrive at that kind of consensus-based, compassion-based social structure? And, you know, how do you, what do we get rid of all the conservatives and then the rest of us live happily ever after? I'm sure they're saying the same things about us. <laughs> you know? Well, well, you know how how writing books. Yeah, you've you've written books yourself, and and you know you go into writing a book thinking you know what you're gonna say, but then you come upon things in your research that change the book. Right. Right. One of the one of the most <clears throat> interesting things I came upon while I was researching. Civilized to Death was the discipline of disaster sociology, which which I hadn't even heard of. And so this is people who study human behavior in disasters, mm -hmm. right? And so we have the the sort of popularized notion uh, that without, you know, and this is very Hobbesian, without the state looking after us and, and keeping us in check, we turn into chimpanzees and rip each other's faces off and, and just go crazy and rape and pillage and, and the rest of it, right? Right. Uh, and so we have, you know, sort of mythological uh, celebrations of this notion in, in the form of Lord of the Flies, right? Which every kid is forced to read. These kids are on an island. Suddenly there's no authority figure. They start stomping each other and breaking each other's glasses and tormenting the fat kid. And it's just a, you know, dog eat dog world. Mm -hmm. Well, disaster sociologists have looked at how people does behave in disasters. And what they've found is exactly the opposite of the, of the propaganda that we've all been subjected to. That in fact, when people are desperate and afraid, they reach out to each other and help each other. Not just family, not just people that they know, strangers. This is this is our nature. This comes from hundreds of thousands of years, as we were saying earlier, of offering hospitality to strangers because you never know when you're going to be the stranger, right? Right. The, the, right. Beautiful expression. My my uh, ex partner Casilda told me she grew up in Mozambique, and at one point she said, oh, when I was a kid, we used to say the best place to store extra food is in your friend's stomach. <laughs> I remember that, that from a book, and that's, yeah. exactly, that's exactly right. Yeah. It's so beautiful, isn't it? And, and it so, is. you know, when your refrigeration goes out, even if it's 2023, your food's going to rot. So you better have a big cookout and invite all your friends over, because otherwise you're just going to throw it all away. So... There, there are structural imperatives that make generosity uh, uh, the optimal approach to life. And those imperatives kick in when the sort of civilizational superstructure falls apart, whether it's because of earthquakes or wars or disasters of whatever sort. And so I remember there was an interview. I got most of this information from a book called Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit, which is just a beautiful, fantastic book. Um, and she interviewed the man who sort of founded disaster sociology. And his background was that in World War II, he was hired by the U.S. military to study um, how the German population responded to bombing campaigns, like the bombing of Dresden, right? No military significance at all. 
they we firebombed Dresden, destroyed this incredible medieval city to break the will of the German people, right? So that they would give up. And what he found was it didn't break their will. We killed millions, but they just said, fuck you, America. We're going to fight even harder. We're going to, you know, deal with even more like what's happening now in Ukraine. Their will is not being broken by these bombs. So he founded this after World War II. He founded this discipline, spent his entire career studying this. And at the end, he was retired and she interviewed him. Rebecca Solnit interviewed him. And he said, you know, at the end of my career, I've come to the conclusion that people who live through disasters remember those days as the best days of their lives because they felt they had a purpose. They felt connected to their neighbors and their community. There was meaning in their lives. He said, I've come to the conclusion that the real disaster is normal life. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. That's exactly right. Uh, that, that's one of several things actually that I took away from your book that was, that left me, the term is cautiously optimistic, right? That maybe there are solutions, but how do we mature enough i mean we are so fractious as a species and uh you know the political divides and the religious divides and everything else how can we i mean we need a a uh, some we need a rapid a way to mature rapidly you know to expand yeah. our perspective maybe psychedelics are part of this i mean a lot of people say well psychedelics will save the world. Well, maybe they can be part of the solution. I don't think they're going to save the world. They could certainly be an important part of it because of their ability to shift people's perspectives, you know, and to really let people look at a situation from outside their usual reference frame. You know, I think that's the that's the promise of psychedelics, both therapeutically and in terms of essentially helping us be better humans, helping us learn how to be better humans, more compassionate toward toward each other. But uh, how can we implement that, that how, how do we get the world to wake up to this on a global scale to say, you know, the reason you're so afraid is that you're afraid that you're not going to have enough to eat, you want to medical care, you won't have these things. A lot of this division in in our society is basically fear-based. How can yeah. we get to a collective consensus where, you know, we, we implement compassion and we implement empathy among our fellow beings? And, and that becomes the narrative rather than I have to dominate you because if I don't, you'll take everything I have, you know? I, I, I think, and I don't know whether, you know, you want to call this an optimistic vision or a <laughs> pessimistic vision, but I think we're going to get there through disaster. Through disaster. Okay. Yeah. I think that's the only way to get there because, you know, when the game is functioning, people follow the rules and generally do what they're told to do. And what we're told to do, unfortunately, is to be suspicious of, of strangers and, you know, take care of ourselves and, you know, everyone else on their own. And as you say, if you don't work, and this is very much an American perspective, by the way, if you go someplace like Denmark or Sweden or Finland, the idea that everyone deserves a, you know, a, a life of dignity and sufficiency is not outlandish at all yeah. so you know we're on a fringe as far as this sort of hyper capitalist individualist perspective um but yeah i think you know as you said as we speak right now right july 18th uh, uh temperature records are being set in europe in the southwest u.s in africa in the middle east uh floods like people have never seen before are happening in in the northeast uh, you know, just tornadoes and all sorts of uh, the biggest fire in Canadian history is happening. The shit is hitting the fan as we speak. The fan. That's true. So 
that's negative in the sense that, you know, we're all afraid of it, but it's positive in the sense that we all knew this was coming. It's here. What are we going to do about it? And what has our species done in the past to deal with challenges? What we do is we take care of each other. That's what we're best at. We're not stronger than chimps. We're not faster than cheetahs. We're not, you know, the, what do we do? What are we good at? We cooperate. We take care of each other. So, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not wishing for disaster, but I do think that we are facing disaster in every different realm. As you were saying, institutions are, are collapsing from within, whether it's the church or the Supreme Court or the Congress or, you know, nobody trusts any institution anymore. So the whole thing is falling apart. And the question is, are we going to, is it going to turn into a Mad Max movie or a, you know, a Lord of the Flies scenario, or are we going to follow historical precedent and prehistorical precedent and get together and take care of each other and help raise each other's kids and share the car and share the big house? you know, the McMansion with, you know, mom, dad, and a spoiled, miserable kid, you can have five families living in there. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting. We, we, I read a lot about civilizational collapse when I was researching this book and every civilization that's ever existed has collapsed. So the idea that we are somehow going to avoid that is, is nonsensical. And they all follow the same life cycles. You see the same thing happen, whether it's the the Mayans or the Romans or the Sumerians or what the, you know, the same things happen over and over again. And the thing is, we look at that and we say, oh my God, civilizational collapse must be horrible. It must be absolutely devastating to live through. But that's because the histories are written by the elites. The average person... Yes probably lives better after the the collapse than before the collapse and that's something we need to keep in mind the the you know bill gates isn't going to like it when everything falls apart but for the rest of us it might actually be an improvement well that's yeah that that's very interesting so the disasters which are now inevitable i mean i would say and, and you point this out in your book you talk about how every civilization we know has collapsed. Eventually, they collapse. What's different about this one is it's a global situation. So the whole shooting match is going to go down, and it's going to go down in a very spectacular way and probably a very environmentally destructive way. And, you know, but it may be that this is the trial by fire that, uh, that we need to to get through and come to some sort of post-historical, more, you know, different kinds of social structure. I think that all of the political institutions and religious institutions, I mean, which is understandable because they they grew out of civilization, but their, their priorities are not, are their own priorities, not necessarily to foster this, this, collective awakening that is necessary you know the i mean and and then again in that sense psychedelics are potentially useful but you can't we can't deploy them fast enough and not enough people are taking that you know i i don't yeah. i i think that they are i think that they are very useful but you know as we used to say about our retreats the real work begins on the plane home you know, right. and that's right. the bit with psychedelics. You could have these insights. What do you do with that? How do you change your behavior? How do you propagate that? How do you make that work in the real world? Uh, you know, the, these insights that you gain, which are which are trivial, and yet they sound trivial. Nonetheless, they're true. You know, we are all one. That kind of thing. Yes, love is all there is. Yes, all that's is important. How do we make take those from abstractions or insights into actual practice? And that's that's the tricky part. I mean, it's no matter what happens, it's gonna we're in for some rough times ahead. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I, I think 
you know, the cliche about the Chinese word for crisis and opportunity is the same. I don't even know if that's true. I've just heard it so many times. Uh, but certainly every crisis is an opportunity. And when you have multiple crises converging the way we do now, environmental, political, health, you know, just everything seems to be falling apart. I think it presents us with a huge opportunity to revolutionize our experience. Um, you know, certainly, you know, I, I don't envision massive social change on a grand scale. What I envision is the system falling apart enough that it frees us up to do things that have been prohibited up till now. Like I mentioned, you know, what's stopping three or four families from sharing a big, a big house? Well, yeah. zoning laws, you know, that's what's stopping them. Uh, but if the, if the value of real estate collapses to the point where, you know, whatever municipality or, or owner is, it has that house is going to be happy if anyone's paying rent, if anyone's living in it, then the zoning laws change and there's more flexibility, right? Like lots of places you're not allowed to have chickens in your yard or you're not even allowed to hang your laundry outside. You have to have a dryer. It seems ridiculous, right? But as environmental crises propagate, as hunger, income, inequality propagates, maybe those laws change and like, hey, enough people are starving. Let's let them have chickens in their yards, right? We have to adjust to this. So that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that as the you know, the pillars of civilization weaken and start to topple a little bit, it opens up more flexibility for people to do what they need to do to take care of each other, whether it's growing food, you know, having animals. Um, but you know. can institutional transformation happen fast enough? That's the thing. I mean, if yeah. you look at the climate situation, they're talking 10 years, you know, yeah. kind of at the outside. Could we pivot, adjust, and deal with this in that amount of time? I mean, it seems well, like we're we're in a race to we either wake up or everything is fucked up and they, it can't be saved. I, I don't know. And and it's a it, it's a question of how rapidly you know, you talk about the changes in zoning laws, and you're absolutely right. But the, these are inventions of civilization. You, can you, I mean, as I look at Vancouver, where I live, you know, half an hour away from Vancouver, what's happening with the housing situation there is, you know, the, this kind of thing is happening. They're they're taking these big old Victorian houses and turning them into, you know, single family units and that sort of thing. Mm. It's not happening fast enough. And can you imagine the pushback on all this? I mean, this is, yeah. this is problem. The problem is that it's very hard to get consensus about, about what quote should be done. Yeah. Well, you know, I think about when we, when I was living in Barcelona, um, my my wife Casilda, who I told you grew up in Mozambique, she's a medical doctor, and um, she's a beautiful spirit. And and she one day she made it. I came home. I was out doing something. I came home, and she had this giant pot of curry that she had made, like just huge. And it was just the two of us living in the apartment. And she said, "I want to take this." I came when I was walking home today. I went through the park and there were all these homeless people down there, these guys from Africa that do this incredible trek across Africa and then they get across the Mediterranean and hundreds of them die every year and boats go down and and, the, and she stopped and was talking with them and they're really nice guys and she said, I, I want to take this pot of curry down there and, and you know feed everybody. And of course, we went down and within 20 minutes, the police came and said, so what are you doing? Where's your permit? You know, where... You're, you're not a restaurant. How do we know this is? And I was like, these guys are homeless. These these dudes like just came here across the Sahara, you know? They're not worried about our, you know. Um, but, you know, that's the kind of thing where when everything's sort of humming along more or less normally, that's what happens. 
But imagine if, you know, the, the power goes out for a week. There aren't going to be any cops down at the park telling you you can't feed people. No, they're right? going to have their own problems. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've often wondered, you know, a few years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago now, there were episodes in the summer where large cities lost power. There were blackouts. Right. For like a few days. And I often, I thought, well, a few days, everybody's coming together, but a few weeks, mm. there are going to be cannibals in the streets, man. You know, I mean, <laughs> if it comes to that, you know, because we depend so much on this infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, just from my own personal point of view, if it weren't for the internet, I could not survive. You know, I mean, I, I have medical devices. I have, you know, all of these things. We depend on so much of this technology. And it's, you know, I mean, there's one, once you are trapped in that relationship, you can't really get out of it. You know, I mean, I, I can't, I can't change my health status so that I don't need blood pressure medications, for example. Now I right. need them. They are a necessity. Yeah. And to get that pill every morning, you know, there are manufacturing distribution infrastructures as well as all the research that went into it. Civilization supports that, you know. And well, you and I are in trouble. For, if I were a foraging person in one of those societies, I would probably not have high blood pressure because I'd have a better mm -hmm. diet, you know. And even if I did, uh, you know, I would rely on local knowledge and not yeah. not these artifacts of, of the pharmaceutical industry. So we're very, uh, we've sold out in some ways, and in a lot of ways that we sold out is not the right term, but outsourced a lot of the uh, elements of our well-being to entities that are not within, they're not under our control we are we are subservient to them you know the medical system the media system all of these things so i don't know what the answer is like no one really does no i don't think so do you remember this story i told in the book of uh, of the scottish guy who who was going to take the balloon trip in uh sonoma uh yeah yes yes Absolutely. It, I, that's very close analogy to where we are. Right. Yeah. I, I, when I read that, I think I was working on the book and I read that story and um, briefly for, for listeners, it, it was a tourist who was visiting a winery with his wife in, in Sonoma County in Northern California, and they wanted to go in a hot air balloon over the, the vineyard uh, at dawn. And they were out in the, in the parking lot and the balloon crew was setting up one of the balloons and, um, and the balloon was about half full and a breeze came in and the crew was sort of struggling holding the basket and there were some guide ropes tied down, um, but the balloon was sort of, you know, moving too much. And this guy who was like, a, I think he was a personal trainer or something, he was a fit young dude, he jumped into help these the balloon crew and just then the breeze gust of breeze came and the balloon broke the ropes broke free and started to lift off the ground and yeah. all the professional guys immediately let go but this scottish dude held on and the balloon rose up in the sky and he held on and held on and held on until it was two or three hundred feet up and he fell and um, and the the sheriff who was interviewed in the story said, "We don't know why he hung on." And I thought, "Of course we know why he hung on. <laughs> Any of us would have hung on. Of Those course. guys, they were trained to let go the minute their feet left the ground. They knew to let go because they'd been trained. But a normal person would hang on because you would think, "Well, if I let go now, I'm going to fall ten feet." and I, I might twist my ankle so I'm going to hang on because the balloon's probably going to come down but the balloon doesn't come down and I that's to me when people say well we invented civilization we didn't invent civilization 
we just grabbed on to something that we thought was a good idea at the moment. And as you say, it's just been ratcheting up ever since until we're totally dependent upon it. Uh, and we have a totally unsustainable global population. And so we're definitely painted ourselves back into this corner. Um, but I don't think it's intentional, right? I don't think anyone ever, you know, sat down and said, well, you know, if we do this, we'll have more leisure time and we can invent art or, you know, whatever. And no, things no, it, it's in that sense, it's, it's not an invention. It's, it's something it's the accumulation of various responses to different challenges and then right. it all gets to be kind of a schmozzle eventually. And, uh, <laughs> uh schmozzle. there's, there's no, uh, yeah. In a lot of ways we are that person that couldn't let go, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but maybe that's the take home lesson here. We have to be more like the professionals who knew when to let go. <laughs> and this guy yeah. who, for whatever reason, decided to hang on for dear life and lost his life. So maybe that's the the juncture our species is at. We have to. We are at a turning point where we have to, you know, realistically assess the sacrifices we need to make. We need to learn to let go, you know. And everybody's so invested and clinging to whatever it is they're clinging to it's very hard to let go so we somehow need to distance ourselves from that we have to have a more a more species i guess oriented perspective and less individually oriented so i don't know well chris it's been a wonderful conversation i think we could go on all afternoon uh <laughs> For sure. It's been great talking to you, and uh, I hope we can do it again sometime. Yeah, I would love to. It's, it's, is, uh, is there any parting thought that you want to be sure to mention before we well, go off? You know, I, I think when I'm looking for a, you know, a positive uh, note to end on, one thing I often think about is the story told by Robert Sapolsky. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with his work. He's a neuroscientist at Stanford, uh, a primatologist, fascinating guys, right. published lots of books. And, um, he's been studying the same baboon troop in Kenya for probably 30 years now, since he was in grad school. And he goes back every year and baboons are nasty. They're very hierarchical, very, uh, abusive to females and young, and, uh, they're, they're a nasty piece of work. Um, and he went back one year and he saw that, uh, they'd built a hotel near this troop that he studies and there was a dump behind the hotel and the troop took over the dump and they, the people at the hotel threw out some meat that was tainted with tuberculosis. And what happened was the high status males ate that meat and they all died and in the absence of those high status males the troop adopted a much more relaxed live and let live approach to life and he thought well that's not going to last long because males from other troops will come in and, and take over and there won't be anyone to defend these females and lower ranking males but in fact, what happened next year, he went back, he saw that there were new males in the troop, but they had adopted the relaxed lifestyle that they encountered when they came to the troop. And so this has persisted for over a decade now. This is a very unusual troop of baboons that's very peaceful relative to normal baboon behavior. So the takeaway from that is that if we can establish a culture that has values that are actually pro wellness and supportive of these values that I think most people hold innately, there is power in that that can override other considerations. So cultural change can happen very rapidly and it can be very lasting. Well, on that note, we'll conclude uh i'm yeah 
I thank you very much. Uh, you, your book is uh, a lot of food for thought, and this conversation will add to that. So I urge everyone to buy this book, Civilization, Civilized to Death, uh, The Price of Progress by Chris Ryan. It's a, it's a wonderful book. It'll open your eyes. It'll make you think. So, and it certainly reframed for me the way I think about civilization and just about everything else. So, thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you, Dennis. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Have a good day. I'll let you know when we're posted. Okay. And and okay. once you get this thing up and running, let me know and, uh, you know, I can have you on my podcast to help spread the word, okay? Yes, absolutely. listening to Brain Forest Cafe with Dennis McKenna. Find us online at mckenna.academy.